Well, we are in this series, Tough as Nails, and I want to welcome everyone who's joining us online through YouTube or our, our audio podcast on iTunes and, and just say this is week number two. And uh, as I said a moment ago, I'm not giving you message notes during the series. And the reason I'm not giving you message notes during the series is I don't want you to be distracted by trying to you know, find the right fill in the blank and figuring out the points and, and trying to follow along too closely with your notes that you miss what God is trying to speak to you through the message. So over the next couple weeks, what I want this to be is more of a a slap in the face, I guess is the best way to describe it. You know, a wake up call to your face, something that will really challenge you to your absolute core and and make you kind of sit up and and really try to figure out what in the world am I living for? What, What is my faith all about. And so one of the things I'm doing is on Sunday morning, I'm going on our church Facebook page and I'm putting all the scripture and any research information, videos or important points on our Facebook page. So if you want to go back after today's message and kind of get some of the scripture and some of the points or some of the you know other information, that'll be available on our church Facebook page. So you can do that there. But what I want you to do right now is I just want you to sit and listen. I want this to hit you deeply and kind of impact your soul and really be a wake-up call to your faith. And we're going to begin today by asking this question. What should come to mind? What should, not what does, what should come to mind when you hear the term Christian? When you hear Christian, what should we think? Well, Peter, who is one of the closest disciples to Jesus, not only was he one of the 12 disciples, but he was in the three of the inner circle with Jesus. He spent years with Jesus. He watched Jesus perform miracles and heard Jesus teach. He, he spent one-on-one time with Jesus, probably knew Jesus better than, than anybody on planet Earth. And when Jesus was gone, after he had, he had left planet Earth to go be with his Father in heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, Peter is reflecting on his time with Jesus, and he begins to speak about Jesus. And here's how Peter remembered Jesus. Here's the reputation that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to somebody who knew him personally. And I want you to think about this. With everything Peter could have said, here's what Peter said about Jesus. Jesus went around doing good. He went around doing good. And sadly, that's probably the last reputation that we have in the world today. Probably the last thing that the world sees in the church that we as Christians are known for in the world that we live in. One of the, 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 one of the reasons why I think in America we've kind of lost the center as Christianity and America's kind of slipping, slipping further and further away from Christianity. I think one of the major reasons is because we're not known for the very thing Jesus was known for. We don't have the reputation that Jesus had. That's why I am so grateful to a church of generous people where we had over 100 people show up yesterday, an army of people to go out in our community to love to serve so that people could see that Christians are all about doing good and serving and loving and giving of their time and giving of their life to make this world a better place. And not just here at Coastline Church, but all over America, Christians were out in their communities serving. So maybe this is a better question today. What does come to mind when you think of the term Christian? What do, what, what do you think about? Because there, there's people who are listening to this message today, either online or maybe you're here today, who you're not a Christian because of Christians. And, and, and you're not a Christian because of Christians, because of what Christians are known for, because you grew up around Christians. 
You lived with Christians. You went to school with Christians. You worked with some Christians. Or you even married a Christian. And because of their reputation and what you saw in their life, you've decided, I don't ever want to be that if that's what that is. And so the question is, what does come to mind when many people today think about Christians? And unfortunately, it's, it's very, very far from what they should think. We began last week with week number one, and again, I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you missed it, talking about one of the key characteristics of the first century church, one of the key characteristics of the people who began to serve Christ and, and built the church throughout the book of Acts in the first century. Is, here was their reputation. Here's what they were known for, and it's fearless. Fearless. When people thought of Christians, when it all began, they thought these people are fearless. And unfortunately today, we've allowed another religion to hijack this from us. And we now have another religion in the world of people who are fearless, who are unafraid of death and will do some pretty horrific things in the name of their faith because they're unafraid of death when most Christians are hiding and freaking out and scared to death over an election. But when it all began, this is what we were known for. And here's the thing. The, the, the first century Christians, they were fearless. Our leader, our founder, when he set the standard, we talked about this last week. He marched into Jerusalem knowing full well what was going to take place, knowing that he would die the most brutal and horrific death in the history of mankind. And he did it and he set the standard and he looks at us and says, now follow me. And a group of first century people did, and they were fearless. And here's the thing about being fearless. When, 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 you're, when, when you're fearless to loss, and you're fearless to death, and you're fearless to illness and sickness and disease, you change. See, when you're fearless to things like loss, you become very, very generous. You're not worried about, about losing things. And so you become generous and it becomes easy to give and to serve and to love and to care. When you're fearless about death, you become very, very bold. And that's how this whole thing was established. That, that's, that's how it all began as a group of people were fearless. They were generous. They were bold. They, 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 were, they were loving. They were giving. They were selfless. And they made the world take notice. Another thing we looked at last week is that as a Christian, we are to be Christ followers or, or we are to be like Christ. And so one of the things we looked at this last week was Jesus doesn't look anything like this. And unfortunately, many of us who think about Jesus, this is the image that comes to mind. Well, can I say for a moment, this guy could have never pulled off what Jesus pulled off. This guy right here could have never done what Jesus did. See, here's the thing. Jesus, our Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, he was not fragile at all. And Christianity, when it began, was not fragile at all. And the followers of Jesus, those of us who call ourselves Christian, should not be fragile either. Which brings me to a more difficult question we need to wrestle with today, and it's simply this. What's wrong with us? I mean, honestly, what's wrong with us? You look at the book of Acts, you look at the first century church, you look at what Christians went through to, for us to even sit here today, and then you listen to us complain and whine and cry and the anxiety and the fear and people are freaking out over 
politics and economy, and you've got to ask the question, what's wrong with us? Why don't we look like Christianity the way it looked when it began? Or, or let, let me ask, let me, let me rephrase it like this. Maybe this is a better question. What went wrong with us? Where do we go off track? Where do we miss it? Where did it go from what we saw in the book of Acts to what we see in churches across America today? What happened? What went wrong? Because when it all began, Christianity was irresistible. When it all began, Christianity was attractive. The only reason it survived the first century, I mean, think about it. The only logical conclusion for the reason we're here today is because a group of people were fearless, they were loving, they were generous, they, gave, they, they had every empire in the world trying to annihilate them. The Roman Empire, the Jewish Empire, trying to stomp them out. The only reason we are here today is because they lived in such a way that people took notice. They lived in such a way that people stood back and they said, who are these people? They're so bold. They're so generous. They're so kind. They're so loving. Look at the way they care for their wives. Look at the way they care for their children. We've never seen a group of people like this. So here's the question. What happened? Where do we go wrong? What happened to us? Because when you hear the term Christian today, rarely do you think fearless. I mean, there's a dozen different things you think, but fearless isn't one of them. Bravery isn't one of them. Selflessness isn't one of them. Crazy generosity isn't one of them. How did we lose our reputation? And, and can I say it's never more evident in the American church than right in the middle of an election season. We've got Christians literally losing their mind over this election. Like freaking out, sit around some dinner tables around North County with a group of Christians and they're going out of their mind, freaking out over who could become the next president. And it's Jesus is sitting in heaven looking at us saying, what? Like you're freak. you live in the United States of America. And you're freaking out over the economy or who could become the next president? Did you forget who you follow? I walked into Jerusalem knowing what they would do to me. So tell me now, what are you worried about? I mean, it's never more obvious. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it, to think about? Like when you look at the book of Acts and you look at the first century church and the first century Christians and you look at the way we're acting, it's kind of embarrassing. And if it's not embarrassing yet, wait till we get into Hebrews chapter 11 today because it's going to get embarrassing when you look at these people. And we're going we're gonna to study Hebrews 11 and 12 today. And Hebrews is a very interesting book. We don't know who the author of Hebrews was. It could have been a man. It could have been a woman. A lot, of, a lot of people think it could have been a woman because the author's not mentioned. Because if it was a woman, it would have never been included. So they left the author blank. But what we do know is this document was so very important to the early church fathers that they felt like it had to be included and it had to be kept. And the whole book of Hebrews is, is, is a book written to Jewish Christians who about 30, 40 years after the resurrection, persecution is beginning and the pressure is rising and it's not as easy anymore to, to follow Jesus. Like the first couple years were, were easy. Now it's getting a lot tougher because of the persecution and the martyrdom and, and they're starting to, to question. And so the book of Hebrews is written to answer the question that the Jewish Christians were beginning to have. And the question is, is it worth it? And is it worth it? working. Is it worth it? 
Like, is it really worth it? Like, like we've lost our business for this thing. We've lost our homes. We're on the run. We're living in hiding now. Some of us have lost loved ones, family members. We've lost friends. They, they've taken them to the arenas and, and the gladiators have killed them and, 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 and we're sport. Is it really worth it? And not only is it worth it, the other question is, is it working? Like, are we making a difference at all? Like, are we even making an Because 2,000 years ago, they could have never imagined a nation like America. Like you go back to these people who are questioning, is this thing working? Is it ever going to take off? Is it ever going to make a difference? They could have never imagined a country where there was a church on every street or every block in every city and every town. You tell them that people get married in churches and buried in churches and there's churches everywhere. They would have thought you were out of your mind. We're a little movement. We're being hunted for our life. We have nothing on our side. Everyone's trying to kill us. There's no way this will ever make that type of impact. And so they're struggling. Is it worth it? And is it working? And so we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to set it up with the very first verse, which has been the most misused uh, verse on the subject of faith. I mean, preachers love to take this verse out of context, and I hopefully will clarify a few things for you today. Uh, let me just say, Hebrews 11 is not trying to, to come up with a great idea and talk God into doing it. That's kind of what a lot of us have been taught about faith. That's not what it means at all. It's simply about trusting what God has already promised, and I'll show you that today. So let's dig into it. Hebrews 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Here's the thing. If any of you have ever had a job, you've had faith. Let me explain. When you took a job, you sat down in, in a meeting or an interview with, with, with somebody, and that person told you, if you'll begin working today, in two weeks, we will give you a paycheck. And so you began working confident that what you're hoping for is actually going to happen. You began working assured in what you haven't seen yet. Like the, I haven't seen the paycheck yet, but they promised me that if I start work today in two weeks, there will be a paycheck. So by faith, you begin working. So faith is simply confidence in somebody's promise. It's just believing in a promise that was made you. And then he says this, this, meaning that level of faith. Living your life confident in a promise. And, and this is the promise that God made Abraham. Living your life with that type of promise is what the ancients were commended for. And then the author for the next few verses goes through all of the Old Testament greats. Moses, uh, Rahab, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, all these incredible men and women of God. And he said all these people were commended. They, they, were, they were awarded and rewarded, not because they came up with something and talked God into doing it. Again, that's not faith. That's actually magic is what that is. What they were commended for is God made them a promise. And they decided that they would live their entire life as if God was going to keep that promise. That's what faith is. Faith is the confidence that God is going to do what God had said he was going to do. That God, God will do what God promised. So walking by faith, living a life by faith is simply living your life every single day as if God can be trusted. That's all it means to live a life 
of faith. And so he goes to all of these Old Testament saints. And then we get into verse 13. He says, all these people, again, all the saints, Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Rahab and all these, these men and women of faith were still living by faith when they died. And this is where it gets really challenging for us. These people lived their entire life believing in a promise, believing that God was going to do what God said he was going to do, and they died and never saw it happen. They lived their entire life believing, and they died without ever seeing it happen. They did not receive the things promised. They didn't receive it. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And again, he's referring to the promise that God made Abraham. I'm going to make you an incredible nation. And here's the thing. We're the fulfillment of the promise. The fact that we're standing here today, halfway around the world, talking about a Jewish carpenter shows us that God kept the promise. They died believing in something they never saw. And you and I are the fulfillment of what they lived their entire life believing for. But this is so challenging for us, isn't this? Because here's what we do. We pray on Monday, and if God doesn't answer our prayer by Thursday, we start doubting the existence of God. Don't we? Like we start wondering, is God real? And why hasn't, I've given him four days. Maybe I need to give him an extension. I'll give him a couple more days. But if he doesn't come through, I'm out. These are people who are looking at us saying, we lived our entire life believing in something that we never saw and we died without it ever happening. And you're, what? He goes on. Some face jeers. He wants to just, you know, raise the pressure up a little bit for us, raise the intensity up. Some face jeers and flogging. We talked about the gruesome graphic details of what it meant to be flogged last week. Jesus wasn't the only one flogged. Many of our first century Christian brothers and sisters were flogged. Most horrifying thing. You can listen to last week. And even chains and imprisonment, they were put to death by stoning. Brutal, brutal way to die. They were sawed in two. Now that's, don't Google that. That is just ugly to look at how they did that. It wasn't, you know, across the waist. It was top to bottom or really bottom to top because they would hang you upside down by your feet because they wanted you to feel and live through as much of it as possible. These are our Christian brothers and sisters. Living by faith, believing God. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then the author of Hebrews pauses for a moment and begins to reflect. And we see that in the grammar with the, with the, with the dash there. It's also there in the Greek. It's like a, a pause and it, it's a reflection. And, and I can imagine the author is thinking through all of these people, all of these people that had given their life, all of these people who had lived by faith, all of these people who had died before they ever saw God come through. They died before they ever saw the promise answered. And he's thinking through all of these people and he's seeing all the dots connected from Abraham to David on and down to where they're at today. And he's beginning to think, what if, what if they would have given up? What if they would have let go of their faith? What if they would have stopped pursuing? And then the author makes one of the most powerful, powerful statements in the entire Bible. He says, the world was not worthy of them. 
These are people who lived their entire life believing God, lived their entire life trusting God, never saw it happen. But they never wavered in their faith, and the world was not worthy of them. And I can imagine the author thinking about all of his complaints and all of his anxiety and all of, you know, I prayed on Monday and God hasn't showed up by Thursday. Where is God? And then he thinks about all of these people. You see, once upon a time, there was a version of Christianity. Once upon a time, there was a version of of faith in God that made the world take notice, that made people stop. It was awe-inspiring. It was irresistible. It was attractive. He goes on to say, all of these people that gave their life, they were all commended for their faith, for believing in God's promise, for trusting that God would come through. Yet none of them, this is challenging, none of them received what had been promised. They lived their entire life believing, and they never saw it. They never saw the answer in their lifetime. And now the author of Hebrews brings us into the story. This is where we come into play. This is, now, now he says, okay, now this is, this is how it all plays out for you. None of them had received the promise. They lived their entire life believing that none of them received it since God had planned something better for us. See, here's the thing. God, something, God had something in mind better for you and for I, they never saw it because what God wanted to do was so much bigger than they could have ever seen in their lifetime. Do you realize we are living proof of it right now? The fact that there are over a billion Christians around planet Earth. There are hundreds of thousands of churches, billions of Christians. They could have never imagined God answering, God doing it the way God did it. And we are the fulfillment. God had something so much better in mind than what they could have ever dreamt or thought possible. They could have never imagined a nation like America being established in the world. They could have never thought or even comprehended something even remotely close to that because God had something better in mind so that only together with us. So now we are the fulfillment of the promise God made Abraham, they be made perfect. Or in other words, God's plan was complete. God completed it. And so you have this entire group of people who lived their life. They were looking forward and were faithful. They were looking forward. They were looking ahead to a promise that had not been answered, that had not been fulfilled, that they never saw come true. And they lived faithfully every single day, believing God, trusting God, that God was going to do it. And even though they died never seeing it happen, they lived their life faithful. And yet here's, here's us. We're looking back and we're fearful. Do you realize we have more evidence For our faith, we should be the most fearless, heroic, bold generation for Christ in the history of Christianity because we have hindsight, we have evidence. Not see, we should be bold and fearless, not because of what God has promised, we should be bold and fearless because of what God has already done. God kept his promise to Abraham. We are the fulfillment that God is a promise-keeping God, which means we can trust him and live our life passionately for him. Therefore, the author goes on to say, therefore, because all of that's true. Because these people lived their life and they died trusting God, believing God, but God had something better in mind and we're now proof of it. We're now the fulfillment of that. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great 
cloud of witnesses. And when this was written, the cloud was the disciples and the, the ancients from the Old Testament. For us, it's all the first and second and third century Christians who gave their life in the arenas at the hands of bears and lions and gladiators and the 15th and 16th century Christians that made it possible for us to read the Bible in our language, in our native tongue. So we've got this entire cloud of witnesses watching us right now sitting in heaven, cheering us on. They gave their life. They shed their blood. They went through pain and they went through hell for us to be here today. And so the author is going to give us instructions for us to run the race. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us hide, whine, complain, hoard our money and our stuff in case the world falls apart. Let's build bomb shelters and stockpile ammunition. Let's blame the Muslims and blame the cops and blame the rich and blame the poor and blame the president and blame teachers and blame our moms. Let's demand our rights and build a wall and we'll tax the rich, we'll play it safe, protect our comfort and find somebody to sue, take back our country, live in fear and pray Jesus return so that none of us have to suffer. Did I miss anybody? <laughs> Make sure nobody's left out here. Can you imagine how we sound to this great cloud of witnesses? Can, can you imagine? You, you're worried about what? You're living in anxiety over what? You, you, you're, you're afraid of what? And not just the cloud of witnesses that went before us. I mean, forget about this cloud of witnesses for a moment. What about our Christian brothers and sisters right now living in Iraq and Syria? Can you imagine how we would sound to them if they could listen to our prayers? We have Christian brothers who are now living in a refugee camp somewhere because they had lost their home and they had lost their business. And he sits there tonight wondering where his daughters are and afraid to even imagine what's happening to them. And he gets on his knees and he begs God for mercy and he continues to believe and he continues to believe and he continues to believe. How embarrassing would it be for them to, to listen to our prayers? Oh, God, help my wife find her key so she's not late for a meeting again. And, and Lord, help my kid get into school. And, and, and let me find a parking spot at the mall, Lord. And just, you know, thank you for the sun and beautiful day. And you're so good, Jesus. Amen. How embarrassing would it be? Do you have any idea the price that was paid for you to even sit here today, for you to even know that Jesus is alive. And so the Hebrew author says it is worth it and it is working. And so what he says to us as we're sitting here overwhelmed by life and living in fear and living in anxiety and freaking out over an election, he says, therefore, since we're surrounded, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. In other words, instead of blaming everyone else, instead of being critical and being negative and living in anxiety and losing your mind, why don't you turn the mirror on yourself? 
Why don't you figure out what's holding you back? Why don't you figure out what's keeping you from being all in? What's stopping you from living a fearless, heroic faith? Because the darker this world gets, the brighter our light shines. So what are you really afraid of? What's hindering you from from walking into the unknown and stepping into it fearlessly? See, we're fortunate. We've got the hindsight to know that God kept his promise to Abraham. They never saw it. They lived every day believing and died, never seeing it happen. We've got the hindsight to know God did it. And if God did it, we have nothing to be afraid of. So he goes on to say, let us run with perseverance. Let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Do you realize God marked out a race for you? God marked out a race. You're not here by accident. God decided 2016. God decided you would be born on the date you were born, so you would be the age you are right now in 2016. That's not an accident. God allowed you to have the talents, the gifts, the skills that you have right now at the age you are right now in the year 2016. Why? Because God marked out a race for you. The question is, are you running it? Are you running it? And here's the key, fixing our eyes on. Now, if you grew up in church, you know the answer to that question, but this is also the problem. Because for so many of us, our eyes aren't fixed on where they need to be fixed. Just sit around the dinner table at most Christian homes in North County, and you'll hear people complaining about elections and complaining about politics and complaining about economy. Why? Because our eyes aren't fixed where they need to be fixed. See, if our eyes are not on Jesus, you're going to get weary. You're going to get tired. You're not going to be able to run your race with perseverance if your eyes aren't fixed on the right thing. We've got to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can have the fearlessness, the boldness, the courage. So in the face of all the anxiety and all the fear and all the world falling apart around us, we can stand with our eyes fixed on Jesus and ask the question, what would Jesus do right now? What would Jesus say right now? How would Jesus respond to this situation? And and remember, they didn't have to go find Jesus or track him down. He walked into Jerusalem. He walked into the jaws of death willingly, and he said, follow me. Could you imagine what would happen if just for one day, just for one day, everybody that believed Jesus was the Son of God just for one day decided, you know what, just today, just today, I'm going to do what Jesus would do. I'm going to say what Jesus would say. And I'm going to respond the way Jesus would, just for one day. If just our church did that for one day. See, there was a time a a group of people did it, and it changed the world. They didn't have the Bible like we have. They had one fact, Jesus rose from the dead, and the reason they believed that is because they either met somebody who met somebody after Jesus was was risen from the dead or met someone who met Jesus risen from the dead, and they had one command, love one another, and they changed the world. See, with as many of us as there are here today, we could change the world again. So he goes on, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, you don't need to be freaking out because Jesus started it and he's going to finish it. Like, you're going to be okay. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And again, one of the things we said last week is is this is hard for us to really get the meaning of because for us, cross is jewelry. 
Like we've turned the cross into jewelry. We've turned it into art. We put it on top of buildings. See, in this time period, the cross, the, cr- the cross wasn't comforting at all. The cross represented death and the most horrific way to die. And then, and then the author says a little statement that if you read too quick, you'll miss the meaning of scorning its shame. Scorning its shame. And Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus did this. And I can prove it. The very reason the cross is art to us is proof that Jesus scorned the shame. Jesus took the shame of the cross. You see, crucifixion, again, wasn't designed just to kill somebody. It was designed to publicly humiliate them. It was the shame. It was to prolong the agony and the pain of the whole thing. And for years, people looked at the cross, and they were terrified. They were horrified. But Jesus scorned the shame. And we now look at the cross today, and it fills us with hope. It comforts us. Because Jesus scorned the shame of the cross. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then the author says, consider him. Consider him. In other words, fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him. Consider what he went through. Consider the standard that he set. Who endured such opposition from sinners. And we talked about what he endured last week. Consider him so that. So that, see, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, when you, when you consider him, when you think about him, you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. In other words, you'll conclude that, you know what, it is worth it. And it is worth it. So as we close today, let me just very quickly, let me talk to everyone here who's older than 40. Like those of you that are 40 and older, and I'm now in your club. I turned 41 a couple weeks ago, and so I'm kind of joining you, and you're now my generation. I'm going to embrace you. Um, so for those of us that are 40 and older, I need to say something to you for a moment. Many of you who are 40 and older, you've grown weary, and you've begun to lose heart. And, and again, sit around your dinner tables, and you'll hear it. You'll hear the conversation. You've grown weary, and you begin to lose heart. And, and here's why you're growing weary, and here's why you're beginning to lose heart. Because you fixed your eyes on the wrong thing. You fixed your eyes on a political system. You fixed your eyes on a political leader. You fixed your eyes on the good old days and the way America used to be. You fixed your eyes on the economy. And we can hear it in your conversations. I got a word for you. And I, again, I don't know if this is from God or, or just from me. Uh, but either, either way, I'm going to give it to you. And, and the word I have for you is knock it off. Knock it off. Cut it out. Seriously. And here's why. You're scaring the children. <laughs> Some of you need to keep your mouth shut. See, the generation behind us, they're taking our, their cues from us. And all they're hearing at the dinner table from us is, oh, no, if we don't fix the economy, if we don't elect the right president, if we don't get the government in order, and we can't go back to the good old days, this whole thing is going to fall apart and the world is over and life is over and everything we know is going to come to an end. And nothing could be further from the truth. I'm telling you, the government matters and policies, all those things matter, but none of them matter as much as men and women who understand faith. None of them matter as much as men and women who live their life every single day as if God is going to do what God has said he's going to do and if God is going to keep his promises. So we need to model for the next generation that God's in control. Like, we're not worried. We're not freaking out. We don't need to, you know, it's not the end of the world. God is in control. So get involved, do your part, vote, all of that. 
but don't fix your eyes on those things. Now let me talk to those of you who are under 40, kind of the generation coming behind us. Here, here's my word for you. Don't grow weary and don't lose heart. You've got so much to live for. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. And here's how. Don't fix your eyes on social media. Don't fix your eyes on the government being some sort of savior. Please don't fix your eyes on our generation because we're getting it all wrong right now. Like, don't do it. Once upon a time, there was a group of people your age who embraced a resurrected Savior, and they were fearless, and they changed the world. And then the author, as if he hasn't slapped us hard enough, he has to take one last shot. Like, we haven't got it yet, so he takes one last shot. In your struggle against sin, in your struggle in the world that you live in with all the you know, things falling apart and just the sin and the junk and everything else you're going through, Come on, you haven't even yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The author's looking at you like, really? Like, you haven't shed one drop of blood over this thing and you're freaking out over what? You're anxious over what? You're losing your mind over what? Get with it. You're following a promise-keeping God. God kept a promise he made 4,000 years ago. You're living proof of it. You have no reason to doubt. So what if we began to live our lives in such a way that people were attracted again? That when Christians showed up, people rejoiced. I'm so glad the Christians are here. I'm so glad I work with Christians. It's like everyone else at work is freaking out about this and going crazy over that. And they're so calm and they're so stable and they're, they're not worried. They're not worried about the economy and they're not worried about government. And they're just, they just have this fearlessness and this faith and this boldness and this, this sense of calm that, that they're just, it just changes the environment. Thank God the Christians are here. They're so selfless. They serve, they give, they love. See, that was one of the things about the second century church. One of the reasons people loved them is people would throw away their children at the rivers because they couldn't afford them. And the Christians would go down and take these kids that were left in the river to die and they would take them home, kids that weren't even their own, and they would care for them and they would love them and they would help them. And plagues would go across the second and the third century decimating populations and the Christians would run into the cities knowing that it would cost their life and they would care for people who were dying and care for people who were sick and oftentimes losing their life in the process and the world looked at these people and said who are these people I don't know if I ever want to be one but I sure want one around when the world falls apart I don't know if I ever want to be one but they change the environment they love they serve they give they're fearless what if that's what we were known for again See, I'd love to see another generation where it could be said the world was not worthy of them. And more than that, I'd love it to be our generation. Who wants to try with me to get it back? Who wants to go back to that fearless, radical, bold, generous faith that changed a world? we got to fix our eyes on Jesus. Would you close your eyes with me for a moment? Just bow your heads.
If you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower, not what we call a Christian, I'm glad you're here. Because I'd like to invite you to join us on the most amazing journey of your life, and it's a journey of following Jesus wherever he leads. And one of the things I said last week is oftentimes when we invite people to become Christians, uh, I don't think we really do it justice. And so I think, you know, I think we should probably include the wedding vows when we become a Christian. Like, Jesus, I'll follow you in good times and in bad times, in sickness and in health, and for richer, for poor, because I think too many of us, we signed up for Jesus to be our Santa Claus and bail us out of this and bail us out of that and help me with this and help me with that. But we really didn't sign up to follow him. We're just kind of getting into it to see what he could do for us. And it doesn't work that way. We don't follow Jesus because of what he can do for us. We follow Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. That's what faith is. And so I want to invite you to join me today and follow Jesus. So if you're not a Jesus follower, uh, and let me make it clear, I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm not asking you to join a religion. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. And then for those of you who maybe you've been a part of church, maybe you've been in and out of church, maybe there was a time in your life where you followed Jesus and you're not following him anymore for whatever reason. Maybe you were around too many Christians and you're like, you checked out. I get it. I did it. What I want you to do is follow Jesus, not follow people, follow Jesus. People get it wrong. I get it wrong sometimes. I'm not perfect. I'll be a bad example at times. That's why we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on the church. Don't fix your eyes on pastors. Don't fix your eyes on people. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's not going to let you down. I'll let you down sometimes. The church could let you down sometimes. Jesus will never let you down. And so what I want to invite you to do is to follow Jesus. To say, you know what, I'll give my life to Jesus. I'll, I'll, I'll live for Jesus. Wherever he wants to take me, I'll live for Jesus. And I know this is landing on different people different ways, but there, there are many of you here this morning who you would say, you know what, I don't think I've ever done that. Or I'm not doing that now. That's, that, that wouldn't describe my life right now. And, and I need to just go all in and make a decision to follow Jesus today. And so I'd like to invite you to pray with me. And, and this first prayer is just between you and God. And so I'm not going to ask you to stand up. And you don't even have to say anything out loud. This is just a moment between you and God. But if you're here and you would say, you know what? It's, it's time that I surrender my life to Jesus. It's time that I follow him for who he is. With every eye closed, would you very quickly, just so I know who's about to join me, just slip up your hand and then you can put it back down. Just raise your hand. And put it back down so that I know who I'm praying with. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you. I appreciate those hands. So the prayer, the prayer is very simple. In your heart right now, just say, Jesus, today, I make a decision to follow you. And I know it's not going to be easy. I know it means things are going to change. But I want you to be the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. I now give you control of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. You can look up for a moment.
For those of you that prayed with me today, I want to encourage you to take one more step, and this is something you can do on your own after the service is over. Paul outlines the process you're in like this. The first step is you believe in your heart. The second step is you say it with your mouth. That's, that's the process that Paul outlined. So what I'd like you to do is on the connection card you got in your worship guide, there's two boxes. One says I'm committing my life to Christ. One says I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. Whatever decision you made reflects one of those boxes. Would you check the box that applies to the decision you made? And then I want you to just give your card to somebody personally and tell them. Last service, somebody walked up and handed me their card and said, hey, you said to give it to somebody. I'm giving you my card. I made a decision to follow Jesus. And that's all I want you to do. So find one of our pastors or one of our leaders. They've got the red lanyards on or the pastor's kind of hanging out in the area. You can ask for one and just say, here's my card. I chose to follow Jesus today. That's all you have to do. And all they're going to do is congratulate you and welcome you on the greatest journey of your life. It's going to be a fun journey together. Would you stand with me as we close? Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, this is challenging, challenging material. But, God, it's time that we wake up. This, this world is very likely not going to get any easier, and I'm not a fatalist. But the reality is it's, it's not getting any easier. And so if we can't learn to stand for you now, it's going to be awfully difficult to stand for you tomorrow. So God, let our faith wake up. Let it begin to roar again as lions. Let our fearlessness and our bravery begin to embody who we are, our boldness, our radical generosity. Let the world begin to welcome Christians again because of the life that we live. Let us become attractive again and irresistible again. Let us be a sweet aroma to our communities again, the way you've called us to live. In the name of Jesus.